0: Good morning, I'm Cameron. I'm the pastor of Christ Community Church. Many of you may not recognize me. I am wearing a tie. Um, uh, (laughs) But uh, it's a -a once-a-year phenomenon. I I, I gotta be honest with you, sometimes I feel like I look a little bit like Joe Biden, because every picture I see of him, he's got a tie and his sleeves rolled up, so... Just know that crazy Uncle Joe's kind of running through my head a little bit. Uh, maybe, uh, hopefully not. All right. If you would turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter twenty-eight, we're going to look at uh, the concluding chapter of the Gospel of Matthew as part of our uh, sermon series on for Easter. We have one more week. Next week, from Acts chapter one, uh, verses one through eleven, and Robbie will be preaching that sermon next Sunday. Um, but this is this is. Uh, this is the, where everything comes together and so is so beautifully displayed as in the resurrection of Christ. And Matthew's take on it is, 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 is a bit different than many of the other Gospels and includes a number of elements that are not included in the other Gospels, and so it's worthy of us paying attention to uh, as we look at it. And then one of the things we want to remember about Matthew is he's just a great storyteller. Uh, he's done an amazing job of just weaving in and out of the story uh, of, of people's lives if you notice he was juxtaposing Peter and Judas with the faithfulness of Jesus throughout and then he juxtaposes the silence of Christ with all the verbiage and all of the the just uh, saying see to it yourself by the chief priests and Pilate himself uh, and Christ remained silent through all that and so what we're going to see here is uh, the story of a race essentially a race to make sure to communicate something about the resurrection. One group is going to be challenged to race to tell the disciples that he is risen, and he is risen indeed. The other group is racing to get the um, wages of spin into action so as to cover up the resurrection so that it doesn't get out. And all the while, Christ has gone where he said he would go to Galilee, declaring that the race was in fact over. There was no race at all. And so Matthew does just a great job. And anytime you read the gospel, Matthew, you want to pay attention to that, that he loves to kind of interweave things and ultimately just declare that all that human effort that you're reading about really is determined by Christ. And ultimately, his faithfulness decides it all. And that's good news for us this morning as we come. Uh, But the question that I want to open with and ask you about is, what events or circumstances have caused you to pause in great awe and has brought you great joy. Think about that for a moment. Um, any of you who've witnessed the birth of a child—that is a—that is a moment of great awe, and causes you to pause and gives you great joy. It's a moment at which we often weep. A great meal can do that. Any of you ever had a low country boil in New Orleans? You know that they're catering heaven. The new heaven's new It's going to be catered by New Orleans. Um, any time that you have, have tasted some new pumpkin-based product in the fall. You know, you know, something good's happened. Uh, and so we, we like to share those moments with people, the moments that we have of awe. Those of you who've ever hi- t- taken the hard job of hiking, as John Huff did recently, up to about 14,000 feet, uh, and, and, uh, and looking around, you, you feel your smallness and the greatness of God's creation, and you, you feel that, that God is good, uh, and you're in awe, and that's joy, and you, you want to share that with people, Right? The things that cause us to awe and bring us joy, we long to share with other people. And so that's the power of the resurrection, is it should spark something within us, a sense of awe and a sense of joy. uh, But unfortunately, I think because of, of how our lives so often go and living in a broken and a fallen world, stuff just gets heaped on top of us and we cease to have awe and we cease to have joy. One of the things that we talk about often here is don't be afraid to call something a miracle. I just had a conversation with someone this morning at Starbucks where they, they said, I'm a little hesitant to call this a miracle. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't hesitate. In fact, you woke up this morning. How many of you have a knob somewhere on you that controls a CO2 exchange? None of you. you. You don't make the exact pressure necessary in your lungs happen. You don't make the exact pressure necessary to circulate blood from your heart down to your feet. And some of you may be saying, yeah, but it's running a little slow. Well, that's because you're running that high test stuff. I mean, that's the stuff you're eating is doing that to you. But, but, but you don't control all that. It, it, it goes on miraculously uh, despite some of our best efforts, right? And so there really is more that goes on that's miraculous that maybe we've just grown either blind or deaf to or have seen as mundane. And so I would that we as Christians would be those who are the easiest, the easiest to be in awe, the easiest to be overjoyed. In fact, I've heard it said this way, is that as Christians, we should be some of the most easily edified people on the planet. And yet so often, are we? Is that how the world describes us as easily awed and full of joy and, and easily uh, made, made to, to enjoy things? But it should be. And the resurrection is ultimately the key to that. And so often I think that's the danger of Easter, isn't it? Is that we kind of only talk about the resurrection seemingly once a year. No, hopefully we're thinking about it and living in it and living it out year round. But if all we do is gussy up a little bit, throw a towel, you know, eat a little bit different today, hunt some eggs, which I don't know how that's Christian, but but, okay, fine. Uh, Do all that. Uh, Eat some Cadbury, you know, overeat on some Reese's material. Um, if If that's it, if that's as much as we get out of it, woe be unto us. For Christ died for greater than that. And that's what I hope we'll see here this morning as we look at the text. So the thing that I want us to all walk away with, is that Jesus Christ has risen from the dead to fill us with awe and joy as we serve him in making disciples in the power of the resurrection. And so as we look at the text this morning, uh, see it with fresh eyes. In fact, last week I prayed Uh, because of the weight of the crucifixion. And this week, I think it would be a mistake for me not to pause and pray because it would seem to suggest that the resurrection doesn't weigh as much. So I'm going to pause for just a moment and pray for us before we step into the text and just ask the Spirit to help us see. Not that Bill's prayer wasn't enough. I just think this is so large, so important that we need more prayer. Father... Would you graciously in the power of your Holy Spirit open our eyes to the awe and the joy of the resurrection as it applies to us, not just as some distant historical event. It is true that Christ rose in space and time and history and that matters. But if it doesn't, if it doesn't have an impact on how we live today and how we think today, how we engage the world today, then woe be unto us for it is in vain. So would you give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to to feel and receive hands and feet, to go and do. As a result of the resurrection of Jesus, would you help us to see the miraculous that is breaking in all around us and in us? In Christ's name, amen. All right, if you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 10. Now after the Sabbath, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. For he is risen, as he said, uh, he is risen as he said, Come, see the place where he lay. Then go quickly and tell his disciples that he is risen from the dead, and behold, he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I have told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, and ran to tell the disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshiped him. Then Jesus said to them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee. And there they shall see me. All right, what we have is, situation that is unfolding after the crucifixion. This is uh, as the Sabbath is coming to a close, which for them would have been Saturday, and the dawning of a new day, which would have been Sunday. One of the reasons that we worship on Sunday, in fact, that's part of the celebration of the resurrection year round. Don't miss that, that we gather on Sunday instead of Saturday because we celebrate the Christ who has come and is coming again. The Christ who is risen and ascended and will come again. And so, Uh, They, the women, the two Marys, go looking to see what was going on. And again, you've got to remember, this was a very dangerous thing for them to do. Because if Jesus is not in the tomb, and they're the two of his people or disciples who are found around the tomb, then what's going to happen to them? They will be accused of having stolen his body and will be put to death, probably in a worse way than even Christ himself. So they are risking much to come and see. And so as they show up, an earthquake happens, which oftentimes in scripture is used to signal the coming of the Lord. In this case, it signals the risenness of Christ and the coming of an angel, a messenger to deliver this message to them. So think about that for a second. Uh, you, you, you come to a place and an earthquake happens. What does that do to you from a sense perspective? Well, you're going to pay close attention to what's happening. Not only that, but you have this being who comes and it's, the description is like lightning. What a powerful image. And not only that, but the stone of its own accord rolls away and the angel sits on it, which is a sign of dominion. That in fact, the Lord has dominion over the grave. And he says to them, He says, I know why you're here. And notice, they don't have the same response as the soldiers. They're afraid, but they are not like dead women. Only the soldiers who were to guard a corpse become like a corpse, showing their lack of power and weakness. And so the angel says to them, He is risen. And he has gone before you to Galilee, and you are to go and tell. In fact, if you don't believe me, see where he lay. And so the women respond, you notice, very quickly. And they take off, and notice the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. The women who are, are rushing with this message burning in their hearts, instead of waiting all the way till they get to Galilee, he catches them on the way. And he says, Greetings. Which you got to know that would have calmed them even further. And, and, and so they, in response to the presence of their Lord and Savior, fall down and worship and grab his feet. Now, if they can grab his feet, what does that mean that he is not? This is not an apparition. This is not a ghost. This isn't some sort of vision that they're having because they just freaked out because lightning blinded them. No, this is the risen Lord, and they can touch him. He is risen indeed. And he gives them the same message, but he uses a phrase that shows his endearment also for the disciples who've been scattered. He says, go and tell my brothers. This is a term of endearment that he uses only in special occasions. He doesn't use it very often, but he's saying, they are in fact family to me and I want him to meet me in Galilee. Now, it's important that we recognize where he's not going. He's not going to Jerusalem, where the temple is. But he's going to Galilee, which is actually a Gentile area, and that signals to us that the ministry of Jesus is in consistency with the Abrahamic covenant. He's already come to the Jews. He's already made himself manifest to the Jews. And what do many of the Jews... By the way, not all, but many of the Jews do. Call for his crucifixion and call for his blood to be on them and their children and their children's children. Which is interesting, the language that Peter is going to use at Pentecost when he says, this is for you and for your children and your children's children. Repealing the curse that they had called down on themselves in essence in Christ. And so, here, Christ, in great grace, meets them before they ever get there to embolden them and to, and to make sure that they know how much they mean to him, these two women who had served him along the way. And so what we see is that, that Christ is risen, and in this, this case, it's, it's not in the, the same way that the other gospel writers tell it, it creates a bit of tension. So while they're on the way, there's another story that's going to open up. But before we get there, let me read this from Charles Simeon. He says, the Lord Jesus undertook to expiate, which means to cleanse or do away with, to expiate the guilt of a ruined world and to redeem them to God by his blood. Under the sins of men he died. But who could be sure that his atonement had prevailed for the end for which it had been offered? He had mediated, it is true, but who could tell that his mediation had been accepted? How could that point be satisfactorily ascertained? His resurrection proved it beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, what are the wages of sin? And if Christ doesn't rise from the dead, then what is he? Guilty. only thing that can hold him is his guilt and sin, but because he was not guilty, And he took the sin of the world on himself and broke it in the brokenness of his body and covered it with his blood. That means that he can rise from the grave not guilty. And so for him to be resurrected is a grand declaration that echoes throughout all eternity that Christ is not guilty and that he is king and Lord over all things. Praise be to God. So the question that I have for us is, what are some ways that Jesus' resurrection have sparked awe and joy in you? And that's worth you thinking about because it is, it's a historical event that happened literally a few thousand years ago from which we can be utterly divorced for 364 days a year. We confront ourselves with it at least once, whether we need it or not, and we always need it. Um. So how is it impacting you? Well, some of the ways that I've seen it. I've seen it impact those who are walking in darkness. They're so broken and they are so um, bedeviled. They are so um, confused and blinded by sin. And you see the moment when the Holy Spirit or or the effects of the moment when the Holy Spirit comes into their heart and shows them whether it's they become a Christian for the first time or they're a Christian who has long lost their way and find their way back. The Lord granted me this opportunity uh, this past Christmas. uh, And I've shared this before, a young man who I was friends with from a time when I served as an interim down at uh, Four Corners Church down in Noonan. And he had done some things that were pretty bad and had lost his marriage in the process. And two Christmases ago, when I tried to talk to him, uh, death just—it it just, and darkness just kind of came off of him in waves. He, was, he wouldn't look me in the eye, he, and, and I was on the periphery of all that. It wasn't that I held any authority over him. And uh, he was so broken, and it, was just, it, just, it just reeked at this Christmas. Through the work and the power of the Holy Spirit and the resurrection occurring in and through his heart, he was a very different man. You could see life in his eyes. It was like there was a light shining from within him. I've seen it many times doing work at the rescue mission. When someone uh, takes hold of the gospel, you can see the light shine in their eyes. You can also see it when it goes out. And so what a beautiful thing that the resurrection of our Lord is manifested in and through us. This is what people should see in us. They should see it. And you can't generate it. You can only receive it and offer it back up. And so uh, it's not just that spring is here. And so we see the resurrection in the springtime, which is beautiful, by the way. And I'm so thankful for it. This is evidence of God's work in all of creation. But better is to see it manifest in his people. That when the hurt of someone else so moves us to want to step in and be, uh, be part of that, seeing it change, right, wrong, or indifferent, that we say, we don't want to see you hurt. There's a place that we hang out at on a regular basis, and there's a lady um, who works there that I, I'm pretty sure, they've kind of kept it tight-lipped, but I'm pretty sure she tried to commit suicide. And so it was, it was, I've had a neat opportunity the last couple of days, one of the reasons I've intentionally gone over there a couple of times, just to, just to try to be around and have some conversation with people. And so I, I don't agree with her lifestyle. Um, she's, she, she's, she's a lesbian. Uh, I don't ag- agree with some of her reasoning on things. However, no one should hurt so much that they would want to die. And no one should ever be so alone that they think there's no one who cares whether I live or die. And so that's the power of the resurrection to to in and through us, his people, to speak into the darkness and say to those who sit in darkness, as it says in Isaiah, come out. Come out into the light. Come out into the power of the resurrection. If you would turn back to the text and let's see the other part of the race that's going on. This is verses 11 through 15. It says, while they were going, meaning the two women, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders and taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell people his disciples came by night and stole him while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And the story has been spread among the Jews to this day. Now what's interesting about this story is as the women are racing to try to share the the resurrected news with with the disciples who need to go ahead to Galilee, the soldiers also take off running and they wanna make sure the chief priests know he's gone. And so they immediately have a little confab, right? All the religious leaders get together and I'm fascinated at the conclusion that they come to. Like, uh, I don't know. All right, here's the deal. We're gonna ask you to take this one on the chin, guys. You're gonna have to say you failed at your job. You're gonna have to say you were asleep, okay? And we'll pay off anybody and everybody necessary to make sure that the lie sticks to protect you. Let me just pause right there for a second. That was the chief religious leaders who supposedly knew the word of God better than anyone else. And that was the best they could come up with. Now, as Calvin says, it's kind of interesting, how would they know somebody stole him if they were asleep? Right? There's a lot of holes in this story, but here's the thing. Money covers a lot of holes, doesn't it? Money can buy you a lot of logic and reason placed in the right hands. Now remember, these guards were uh, part of the Jewish garrison. So it wasn't like it was, it wasn't like it was Pilate's guards themselves. He had rejected that. So this is why they knew they could buy them off and, and, and probably protect them because they were their people. But notice that evil will go to any length necessary to make sure that the resurrection news is not told. Which most of you who know me know what I'm going to say next. To what lengths are we willing to go to make sure that the story of the resurrection is told rightly? How important is it to us that people here that know his body wasn't stolen. No, this is not just some great ruse, right? Because remember, not only do they have to admit that they failed in terms of staying awake, somebody's got to admit to failing having actually sealed the tomb. Because it was supposed to be sealed. And not just anybody, how could they stay asleep while, while, while the disciples are trying to hack their way into the tomb? So there's lots of issues here, but they were willing to accept a a really bad lie instead of the really good truth. So here's the question that I have for us. What are some things that you are accepting, some really bad lies that you are buying into instead of believing the fullness of the really good truth? What are some half-truths? I'll take it outside the lie. Some half-truths, which are whole lies, by the way, but some half-truths that you are buying into because it's convenient, it's pragmatic. You may even say it like this. Yeah, I know what the right thing to do is here, but... Yeah, I know this is probably the best thing to do, but I really enjoy this. Or it really saves us money or it's an easier way, or whatever it may be that we have convinced ourselves of. You must understand that half truths, whole lies will never, ever, ever bring you life more abundant. They won't. And taking the supposed hard way is always the ultimate easiest way when it's all said and done. And so what we have here, is a group of men who should have known God's word really, really well, leading people horrifically astray in the power of the resurrection and willing to do so in a way that is laughable, that that would easily be shot down, but they would rather risk that than deal with the actual truth. And just so we don't accuse them, I'm afraid that's too many, if not all of us, at some point. Dan Doriani says this. He says, the authorities pay off the sentinel's but it's a pitiful ploy. The body is gone, but the power of God overpowers the schemes of men. Nothing can stop the spread of the truth. But the real question is whether or not you will join in the spread of the truth. So here's the deal. It's not that you're failing to to make disciples is gonna keep disciples from being made or the truth from going forward. What it's gonna fail to do is allow you to enjoy the fruit of having done that. It's going to cost you the ability to join in the good work that our Father has given into our hands. And that should trouble us. That should be something that moves us. But so often it doesn't. It doesn't. And on those lies that you may be buying, what are you doing actively to push back against them? What is it that you're doing like something that you know is not entirely true or that you've gotten yourself into, that you know it and all the way right, even though you're far into it? What are you doing to try to disentangle that? What are you doing to try to engage that on an active basis? Not just think about it, but actually deal with it. And do you know that even if we knew it, we would still love you? Like if you came to me and you said, hey, I, I don't know if you know how far off track I am. I don't even know if you can handle it. Trust me, I probably can. Now, if you're killing kittens or something like that, I have a hard time with that or like you're beating up old people or you know, I I would have a problem with that, right? So right, don't come tell me that, tell somebody else it's nicer. But everything else under the sun, I've either, either thought about it, may have done it myself or know someone who has and we can walk you through it. But if you're saying, I want to figure out how to get out of this, We are here for you, not in judgment, because the judgment's already been rendered in Christ. You see, that's the gift of the crucifixion and the resurrection. You don't need my judgment. What we need is each other to help us get through, to figure out how to to rise above all this darkness and death and brokenness. And if you're willing, then we are more than willing. If you're unwilling, you're already judged. And all we're doing is pronouncing what's true sometimes. The question is, are you willing? If you would turn back to the text and let's see that the race wasn't necessary. Now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshipped him. But some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And we have here is the great commission, which is just a restatement Or a furthering of the Abrahamic covenant itself, if you're paying attention to those kinds of things, is also a, a furthering of the cultural mandate that was given to Adam and Eve. They were told to be fruitful and multiply. They were told to have dominion. And they were told that God would be with them as evidenced by his provision. And so this is actually just the culmination of all that we were created for. So here's the thing, when you don't participate in the making of disciples at some level, you are failing, listen to me, every single one of you are failing to do and, and participate in what you were created to do and participate in. And none of us has an excuse. Now let me let you off the hook a little bit. Are we all called to go to Iran? I got at least one no, and that is correct. Not to my knowledge, we're not replanting Christ Community Church as Christ Community Tehran, okay? Uh, are we all called to go to China or Myanmar or Morocco or the really bad neighborhoods in France nobody wants to go to or Sweden or Canada, for that matter, or Michigan? Sorry, Joe, Emily. You're, you're safe now in Ackworth, Georgia. <laughs> Maybe not as much as you think, but yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> so, we're not all called to go to these really horrible places, uh, these really tough places. Um, but we are called wherever we are to leverage whatever we have in the spheres of influence that we have, and to be mindful of that. Right? For those of you you have children, that is your mission field. And, and, and work it with all of your might making disciples. Recognizing that the battle is in the spirit, not in the flesh, though it feels like it every day of the week. For those of you who have opportunity to serve in any other capacity, you have opportunities to do discipleship. It's not something that, that you need to do new necessarily. It's how do you leverage what you already have and where you already are. And so what Christ is saying is that we all have a mission and that he has all authority. It's not up to you to make someone believe. It's up to you to give them the truth because we know that the lie is being perpetuated, right? I can't help but think about that hideous strength. I just finished the third in the C.S. Lewis's Space Trilogy and just how much Lewis Uh, how just profoundly insightful he was as he talked about the organization, and I love their name, it was nice, was the name of the organization that was going to destroy the world. Um, And so the thing that that they knew they had the best control of was media. And they could control the voice, they could control the truth, right? Uh, He was talking about fake news before fake news was even a really fun thing to talk about all the time. Um, And so, so what an amazing thing that, that he understood, and we should understand too, the principalities and powers of darkness are at work to suppress the truth of the gospel, the truth of the resurrection. And we should leverage every opportunity that we have to share it with those around us, both in word and in deed. For some of us to become a disciple making disciples, (coughs) you need to work on being a disciple. You need to work on trying to have life more abundant. If you don't have awe and joy in the resurrection, all of your words will ring hollow to those around you. Um, One of the the humblest compliments that I've been paid uh, in a long time, and I'm I'm serious about this, very humbling, I'm in a pastoral cohort. And one of the guys told me, he said, man, he said, I just want you to know how much we appreciate how willing to be transparent you are and it has put all the rest of us at ease because you are so at ease in union with Christ that we are able to be honest whereas we've had no other place to do that before as pastors. And if that's my contribution to that group, then amen. And would that we all would be so comfortable in our union with Christ that people around us would see joy and awe and excitement over the things of the gospel such that they would say, Something there. And all of us look different, right? Susan's excited face, you ready? (laughs) Susan, really angry, you ready? (laughs) It's more variants than that. However, uh, she has, you're not just going to notice it as much, right? That's fair. (laughs) That police escort I needed last week, I'm going to need it again this week. But with me, you, you, you see it pretty quick, right? You can tell, like, my displeasure is an unhidden, I, I've tried uh, and I'm miserable at it. I can't do it, that's why I don't, any of you are like, let's play like poker. I, I'll, I, there's no way, I can't, I'll get, if I see two cards that look alike, I'm gonna get really excited. Uh, and, and, and whole, yeah, I just can't, I can't keep it, right? I'm terrible at surprises, I'm terrible at the whole thing just because I can't hide my emotions. It doesn't make me better than Susan. It's just we're wired different. And you guys are all over the spectrum uh, in terms of how you display your emotions. So don't think it's about how you display. It's, it's about how you live. You, you can tell it. You've been around people who are very quiet souls. And Susan's had people say the same thing about her, that there's something about that her presence, the way she carries herself, that allows one to be at ease in her presence. That is an incredibly humbling compliment to her, I'm sure. And to me as her husband. And so um, we, we have an opportunity to push back against the principalities and powers of darkness that are trying to declare that God is, in fact, dead if he ever existed in the first place. And if he is alive, he's, he's either malevolent, bad, or he's uninvolved. I mean, just take a look around. The world's horrible. And yeah, there's some really bad things going on in the world, but there's some people doing some really amazing things to push back the darkness. And the media is never going to tell you about that because it doesn't sell and you don't buy it. We don't click on that kind of stuff, right? Um, The see what happens next is always something hopefully horrible, right? You know, car flips eight or nine times. See what happens next as people are ejected from the car. Like, no, I don't need to see what happens next. And so we don't even like good news, and so it's on us too, right? And so how can we walk in light of the resurrection? How can we be disciples who make disciples? It begins with the awe and the joy that's in us. Some of you will have great opportunities with many, many people. Some of you much more limited, it doesn't matter. Remember all of heaven breaks out in a party when one lost sheep comes home. Also remember there's another giant party coming in which all of the lost sheep are gonna be invited called the marriage supper of the lamb and we're gonna get down for eternity. And what an amazing thing. And praise God that we will have joy and awe Might we should practice a little bit between the now and the not yet? Listen to what Mark Ross says about this passage. He says Matthew's final narrative, meaning chapters 26 through 28, has no concluding discourse. That is because we are to provide the final discourse. We who are disciples are to make disciples of all the nations, teaching them to observe all that he has commanded. It is a daunting task that he gives us. But behold, his power, meaning all authority in heaven and earth, and his assurance, meaning all the days to the end of the age, are more than sufficient to guarantee our success. Thanks be to God. So what story are you sharing with those in your various spheres of influence? How is the beauty and the power of the resurrection shaping the story you're telling? You need to think that through. Every single one of you, nobody's off the hook. You don't don't get to say, yeah, but he was just talking to the 11 there. I mean, I just think that was kind of a localized, one and done deal. No, Paul actually picks it up and says, you are ambassadors of reconciliation. Ambassadors of what reconciliation? This one. The same charge is for us as it was for them. The question is, what will we do? So what story are you telling with your life? It's worth thinking about. And if you say, I just don't have any awe or joy over the resurrection. I just don't. That's an honest confession and amen. Amen that you could confess it. Now, what are you going to do with it? Are you going to carry that before the Lord and say, all right, I know I should, but I don't know how. And I'm going to pray. I'm going to ask the power of the Holy Spirit to bring this to fruition in my life. So often we don't even pray for that because we're scared of that prayer. We kind of like the devil we know. We kind of like the current level of, uh, uh, of, of ineptitude that we're kind of operating at, right? That low bar. Keep it low. Let's just not get crazy up in here. We don't have enough seats for all that. We don't want to do two services, we don't want to plant more churches. It's complex. And so instead of actually praying something that could prove Christ's miraculous, Prove Christ faithful. Prove God loving. We instead keep our hands over our mouths. You can also pray if you do know of the awe and the joy of the resurrection for opportunity and God will provide. He always does and he's always good when he does it. And it just helps to strengthen you. And will only embolden your faith. So as we conclude uh, on this Easter Sunday, Matthew 28, 1 through 20, what do we learn about the resurrection? Three things. One is that the resurrection should spark both awe and joy in us because of its beauty and power. Two, that it will result in the world crafting lies to suppress its beauty and power. And three, that the resurrection charges us all to be disciples who make disciples in its beauty and its power. Listen to what Charles Spurgeon says. He says, let us be on the watch for opportunities of usefulness. Let us go about the world with our ears and our eyes open, ready to avail ourselves of every occasion for doing good. Let us not be content till we are useful, but make this the main design and ambition of our lives. I don't know that I can add anything better to that, so let's pray. Father, thank you that Christ is risen and he is risen indeed. Thank you that the grave couldn't hold him. Thank you that the lies couldn't keep the beauty and power at bay. Thank you that all of the running and all of the racing ultimately is in vain. Because you have gone before us and you are faithfully making intercession for us. And you will be faithful to come again. Would you help train us up in the power of the resurrection to appreciate in awe and joy its beauty and its power? Would you give us a story worth telling? Would you, in the power of the Holy Spirit, grant us opportunities to make disciples? Would you grant us opportunities to be disciples who are easily edified? Would you show us the planks in our own eyes so that the work of your spirit could help us to tenderly heal and see and be useful in your hands, instruments in the Redeemer's hands. We pray for this in Christ's name. Amen.